Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Espinosa Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Glenn Heilman. Glenn's the CEO of Highmark School Development and has spent over 15 years living in Bountiful, Utah. His love of Grand Lake, Colorado, led led to him purchasing his parents' home in 2020. His family is actively working to restore the property from the devastation of the East Troublesome Fire. In doing so, they hope to honor the legacy of their parents. We'll be talking today about that legacy and the book Glenn wrote in their honor, A Yellow House in the Mountains, A Story of Love and Refinement. And you can find out more about all of this at yellowhouseinthemountains.com. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Good to have you. Um, you know, I think we should start at the obvious beginning, um, which is that your parents died in that fire, um, which is a, a pretty catastrophic way to lose people that are important to you. And also right after you bought the property, is that correct? About seven, eight months later, yes. Yeah. That's that's just such a collision of of um, events there. Plus, I'm aware that that was right in the in the time when COVID was hitting and people were, you know, having to stay home and all. So that that must have been um, quite an intense moment in your life. There was definitely a lot of emotion circulating in 2020, and it obviously came to a head on October 21st. Um, and it happened quite suddenly. Um, Colorado had had a number of fires throughout the year. In fact, the Cameron Peak Fire to the north of where our property was had been burning for four or five months, and they had it somewhat contained, but it was the largest fire in the history of the state. And then there was a little fire, you know, 26 miles away. It had been burning for about two weeks, but, you know, it just kind of took on a life of its own, but no one was overly concerned with it because the big fire was up uh, a little to the north of us and much closer. But uh, that evening, the weather patterns changed and created a perfect storm for that fire to move quickly. And it ended up being the fastest moving fire in the history of the state. You know, I I live in California. And of course, everyone knows we have increasing forest fires and and town fires. Whole towns have burned down down here. So uh, unless you're you're putting blinders on, you learn when you're in a place where there's fires, really how unpredictable they are and how um, uh, potentially catastrophic they are. And so I, I can imagine, even though you come from a strong family, a resilient family, I guess we would say, is that fair to say from your point of view? Still, that must have, must have knocked all of you over, and there are a lot of you. Um, so I know you've dealt with your grief largely in a, in action, um, but I appreciate uh, everything I watched and read from you doesn't ignore the pain of it. 
you know, you'll say, that's the way I grieve, you know, <laughs> which um, many people act to avoid their grief. Not true of you. But how did you apparently quite quickly know what you wanted to do, know what action you wanted to take in their honor? You know, it was really a series of a couple of things. Um, first of all, the night of the fire, my parents called me at 930 at night and my mom was as calm as could be. You would never have known they were in the middle of a firestorm. Um, she was just so calm and suggested that the big one had arrived. And I was confused by that. Upon inquiry, I learned that the fire was there at their doorstep and immediately went into action mode. Mom, what can we do? No, no, we've already talked to the search and rescue. They know we're up here and uh, everything's well. But she goes, I'm on my cell phone and the battery's going to eventually go out. So I want to save my battery. Please call your siblings and let them know where we are. They'll probably hear about this on the news. And they honestly felt like they'd be okay because the home was built in a meadow, uh, certainly nowhere near the forest line. But uh, 15 minutes later, they were gone. The fire came that quickly. It moved 26 miles in less than three hours. And the winds were moving between 90 and 120 miles an hour. So I was the last person to speak to my parents. And they were as calm and as you could imagine. They were certainly worried and concerned. But, um, you know, at 86 and 84, having just survived all of the COVID nonsense that was going on in the world, uh, they were together. And at that point in life, I think they took comfort in knowing that they were together. They were in a place they loved and they were gonna accept their fate uh, regardless. As far as telling their story, it was really six days later that it began. Um, in the middle of uh, everything that was going on, it took you know several days to even get into the location of the fire to be able to reach them. So we wouldn't learn for sure that they were gone for two, day two days. Mm -hmm. um, when they were actually on Friday afternoon, they were finally able to get in there. It was burning so hot, still an active fire zone. But we had suspicions the next morning they were gone. And then two days later, the coroner confirmed they were able to re reach them and retrieve their bodies. And they were exactly where we knew they'd be. They, they had gone downstairs in an area they thought was safe. And the coroner shared that they were literally arm in arm. So in many respects, it was a beautiful ending to a beautiful life. Um, but obviously, there's the grief and uh, the sadness that comes with such a, sh a sudden loss. Um, for me, I got into action mode. I was quickly in the midst of trying to figure out how to organize a memorial service. And my siblings all reacted slightly different. Um, some of them were just paralyzed by it. Others were uh, so sad they couldn't uh, communicate much. But we tried to stay in touch. But for me, I felt like I had to be the one to, having owned the property, to do what I could to try and get in there and do some sort of memorial service. And so I had lots to do from the moment we learned that they had passed until the following week, the county called and made us aware that they were gonna escort us into the property. If we wanted to get up there, we could have some closure. So I went into action mode and started doing all the preparations for getting ready. And on Thursday, the day before the memorial service, I finally had a moment of calm and the world stopped for a minute and I got very emotional. And it was the first time that that had hit me um, and I wasn't comfortable with it. So I went outside to do some yard work. I started mowing the lawn. And while I was mowing the lawn, I had a little tune that I kept humming in my mind. Just, And I played the guitar a little bit and I thought, that's a catchy tune. I'm gonna go inside real quick. So I came and grabbed my guitar. I figured out what the chord progression was, wrote it down on paper and I went back out and started mowing again. And that tune started playing again in my mind. And then all of a sudden some words to that came and it was really the words of a story. And so that was really the start of the creative energy that was associated with the, the loss. 
Um, I was able to get a song written and recorded that night and took it to the memorial service the next day and shared it with my siblings. So that was kind of fun uh, just to be able to share my love and my memories of my family uh, or with my, of my parents with my family. Um, about three weeks later with COVID, we had to do the memorial service in Colorado because uh, in Colorado, they would only allow 25 people to gather. Utah had a rule of 99, so a much bigger audience there uh, was allowed to be together. So we brought the memorial service to Utah, and it was really there that a spark hit because I heard stories from my siblings, some of which I had heard but didn't understand some of the detail or background. Others I'd never heard before, and some of them made me laugh, some of them made me cry, but there were just so many wonderful stories that the next several days I took time to write down those stories that I hadn't heard before. And my wife, actually, I give her credit for uh, where it led because she ultimately said, you know, you ought to write these down in a way that the kids will want to read them, put them into some sort of a sequence or order. And so I spent several months just capturing the memories I had, the stories I had with the ones that I had heard. And I started to organize them into what was a manuscript, not really a book, but just something for the family for personal use. That led to a point in May I was on a, a conference call with a client of mine. One of our consultants works out of Canada, and he was up there visiting his family. And with COVID, he couldn't get out of Canada for two weeks. His wife happens to be an actress, and she was shooting a Hallmark film. And next thing you know, he's up there, but he can't get out for two weeks. He had to quarantine for two weeks before he could return to the States. And I just said, Ted, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm kind of stuck up here, but my wife's uh, film crew just hired me to go find them some new material. I said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm just looking for some good, wholesome stories. They like to tell good stories. I said, well, I got a whole bunch of little stories I've put together. I might send them to you. And he goes, do, please send them up. And long story short, a couple of weeks later, we had a contract with the company. It's called Electric Panda. And they wanted to make a full featured film out of the collection of these stories. So at that point, they said, stop work on the book. We want to get the screenplay done. We want to get the movie going. And so we spent the next year and a half working on getting a screenplay that would tell the story. And uh, then this writer's strike hit back in June and then the actor's strike followed. So they said, you know what? We cannot uh, imagine when this is going to end. So you might as well finish the book. So <laughs> over the summer, I finished the book and now the book is complete. The movie is still in the works, but uh, they do have the strike now resolved. So hopefully first of the year, we'll get started on uh, moving forward on that initiative. But it's kind of interesting how all the stars have aligned and allowed us to get the story out there. Well, and you know, that kind of alignment, um, there may be, you know, mysterious elements to that, as we would both both say, um, but also being inclined to make something of, you know, it's a certain point of view you have, sure. uh, you'll find, you'll find the good in it. And I wondered, as I was reading, whether that might be an inheritance, a legacy of your parents. Um, they seem to be very um, stalwart people um, who made, you know, lemonade out of lemons, I guess we'll say. Was that, uh, is that an accurate perception on my part that maybe inherited that? It definitely is. And in fact, you know, when I first decided on the title, you know, we may get to that in a bit, but I put in it a story of love and refinement. The real story is my dad was a rough, tumble teenager and he got in a lot of trouble. In fact, I wouldn't learn until I was an adult. My dad had spent time in jail and, you know, that, that he didn't obviously want to tell us that. When we were you tell, you tell that story too, quite, quite you know, well. 
he was a rough guy and he obviously met someone, my mom, who he was madly in love with and he felt like he had to change his life in order to have a chance with her. And so that was really the nucleus. His love for her uh, was the nucleus for him to want to change. And it didn't happen overnight, obviously. And I don't think the process was ever complete, complete, but <laughs> 86 years of age. Edge, edgy guy in there somewhere, huh? <laughs> he was tough. He was a tough guy, but he loved my mom and he loved her enough to change his behaviors and his actions. And obviously they had a lot of faith and together they grew in that faith. And that was passed on to us as children, certainly. But uh, yeah, just it's a story of his um, love for my mom that drove him to want to change and to be a better person, just to be better in every way. Well, that also takes your mom seeing that there was something in him that was redeemable, I guess, or, you know, that uh, she was she was no no weak uh, person in the in the pair. I didn't get the impression she she uh, seems like she clearly let him know when he needed to do something differently. You know, it's kind of a fun part of the story. My mom was only five feet tall, so a very short woman. But she, uh, one of my dad's best friends was a guy named Max, who you meet in the story a little bit. But Max was the number two guy at Conoco Oil, so one of the most powerful executives in the world. And he had money. He has private jets. And he also had this little property in Colorado with my dad as a partner. And they just made the most unbelievable mismatch of personalities in every way. But Max used to say the only person he was afraid of was my mom, <laughs> little Mary Lynn, because he knew if she ever got upset, she was the one that could stop Lyle from doing all the things that they wanted to do together. So she was uh, a powerful personality in a small little package. And and they faced early challenges. Um, I'm thinking of her difficulties with all of the five of you, you and your four siblings, getting you into the world was not not easy for her. Yeah, she uh, certainly had some health complications in pregnancy. You know, it even started before that, though. She was 15 when she got pregnant. So, you know, that rough start started very early for both of them. And in those days, uh, when you got pregnant, you weren't able to go back to school. So as a junior in high school, she didn't get to graduate. She wasn't able to go back to school. And so she jumped right into motherhood. Um, and, you know, against all odds, they were able to figure that part of it out. And then quickly, four other children followed. And before you know it, they've got a family of five. My dad's working multiple jobs. My mom's trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And it was a challenge for them, but they worked it out together. They found a way to, to navigate. And growing up, I don't think me or my siblings ever felt like we did without. We always felt like we were loved. We had a great home to be brought up in. And, you know, they, they, but they worked hard. They definitely worked. So we can we can now move to their own capturing of their dream, which was this house, wasn't it? The yellow house. It really was. And before the house was the property, obviously, I'd mentioned this friend of my dad's named Max. Max actually found the property and didn't have any money. Back in the 70s, geologists didn't make any money. And my dad was a fireman and he didn't have any money, but he did have a side job working construction. And he had been able to put away enough money to put a deposit on this property that they had found. But it was up in the uh, town of Grand Lake, Colorado, which is about 9,000 feet above sea level, high mountain living. But they fell in love with the beauty of the surrounding area. It is literally adjacent to Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, the border of our property is the Colorado River. And you cross that and you're into the wilderness of Rocky Mountain National Park. So it's a beautiful setting. They bought it together in 1972. 
And it wasn't until 79 that Max had several promotions. He had to go to Texas, obviously, to work in the oil industry. But uh, he had the money now, and Dad had the, the skills and the time to be able to focus that on. So in 79, they built Max's cabin. And at the same time, my dad put a foundation in. But he and my mom had found a home that they wanted, and my dad had promised to build her a retirement place. And so the foundation went in in 79. It would be seven more years before they could actually get started with the framing of the home. But they literally built it stick by stick, you know, together, working together. They built that home from the bottom up and uh, pretty much had it completed by 1990, but it wouldn't formally move in until 92 full time. Um, I'm looking right now at the cover of the book, which is a beautiful picture of that house. And some people might be surprised at the size of it because often retirement houses are pretty small, right? Um, otherwise a lot of upkeep, but they wanted a very big retirement home. I'm assuming so all of you could come be with them there. Is that, is that, that was exactly it? And it was really my mom more than my dad. My dad never really liked having lots of kids around and grandkids chaos caused stress for him, but he always had work as an outlet. So if things got a little loud inside, he could always go out and grab the tractor and get to work on something. He had plenty to do with property. But uh, that was my mom's ambition. She honestly, with five kids, knew that we'd be living scattered about the countryside. And she wanted her kids to be able to uh, bring their children, her grandchildren, to visit. So part of the appeal of this area was it was desirable as a vacation destination. And they felt like if they built the home large enough that there'd be a room for everyone. And so they built it with five bedrooms so that every kid had its own place to stay. And they built a huge bunk room over the garage where the grandkids could just throw down blankets and, and sleep. And sure enough, uh, after they completed that home, it did exactly what they had hoped it would do. It was a magnet. Nobody could stay away. And so all of their grandchildren- Build it and they, build it and they will come, huh, Glenn? <laughs> that was the message and it was absolutely a success. And honestly, that's what we're trying to replicate right now. We felt like, you know what, that's why we bought the property is amongst my siblings, I was the one that was in a position to see the potential of what that could be for us. And I liked their strategy. I thought, you know, rather than chasing our kids all over the country or world in today's you know, business climate. I thought, you know what, let's let's learn from my parents and let's do the same thing. So we had acquired it before the fire with that same intent. So we're going to go to a, a break now, but when we get back, I do really want to talk about what it's like to be rebuilding a place where they died. You know, I, I, I think we would agree that grief is a very creative process in some ways. And, you know, Building is creative, writing is creative, music is creative, but there's also the grief of it to be trying to um, recapture or obviously never the same, right, to, to rebuild. Yeah. So let's talk about that when we get back. Uh, Listeners, of course, you can go find me at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Um, please reach out and let me know what you particularly enjoy on the show, what you'd like more of, all of that. And to find Glenn Heilman, you can go to yellowhouseinthemountains.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, 
follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Glenn Heilman about his parents and the book he wrote, uh, honoring them, a yellow house in the mountains. And before the break, Glenn, I was um, uh, hoping we could come back and and talk about what it's like building on the property where you lost them, yeah. and having to. I've looked at pictures of the property right after the fire. I'm sure there's more green now than there there was at first. Um, I know how that also happens the regrowth but um that must be poignant for all of you to be um deciding what to build just the same what to change uh i wonder if you can talk some about that process and of course it's now your property but i have a a sense you're you're the caretaker of wow. it uh but but it's everyone's emotionally would that be fair to say? That That is so, so accurate. You know, it's interesting. Rarely do you get a chance to do what we've been given. But three weeks before the fire, we had gone over to visit my folks, which was not unusual. Again, it was COVID. Um, nobody was going to their offices. So I could work from anywhere as long as I had access to a phone. And uh, that summer, probably every two weeks, we would go over for a few days. And while we were there, we'd clear some trees and some debris. And we had little projects around. But the big project was started by my mom and dad. They had an area of the property that was inaccessible, uh, surrounded by an oxbow, a, a circular body of water. Um, and it created this little island paradise. And my mom had this idea to create a park 
for the church group, for the community, family reunions. She just thought if we could ever clear all those trees that we'd have something really special in there. And so that summer they had uh, engaged a, an excavator with a big backhoe and they had started pulling out stumps and clearing debris. And they had covered maybe 50 feet of space and it's probably a hundred feet wide. So they'd done quite a bit of clearing. But on the morning of October 4th, we were getting ready to return to Utah, and my mom asked us to go down with her to see what they were doing. She asked me to bring a hammer, a stake, and a can of paint. So we were a little curious. We get down there, and she started to share with us her vision for that property. And she shared with us excitedly what they had already accomplished. And then she had us, we were in some side-by-side, uh, uh, -side. they had a side-by-side, -side and we had some ATVs. We got off and we started walking through all the debris, and it was literally almost impossible to walk through it. It was so thick and full of uh, growth, you know, trees that had been cut down 100 years earlier. We get to the very south part of that little island, and she said, I'd like to have a pavilion built right here. And so she had me take that stake, pound it in the ground, and paint it green so we'd know where to go to find it. And as we get back to the house, we get in the car. She says one more thing. And she handed my wife a little post-it note. She had already named it. She said, the park has a name and so does the pavilion. The park will be the Heilman Hideaway. And the pavilion will be Punk's Pavilion, which was my mom's nickname. My dad nicknamed my mom Punk. And so Punk's Pavilion, Heilman Hideaway, we drive off. And in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, in five or six years, that'll be a fun project for me in retirement to get to. Little did I know three weeks later, they would be gone. So it was really almost prophetic that she had the intuition to share or hand off her vision for the property. But even having received that, I immediately went to work on the house. Um, my dad, as a builder, had given me, when we bought the home, he'd given me the hand-drawn plans. So I thought, well, it's been burned down, but I'll just rebuild it. I've got the, the drawings and I can do that. Well, big difference is in 1986, when he built it, building codes were quite a bit different. And what I found... When I submitted them, I was the first guy to be able to submit full drawings to the county, and they were rejected. And for all the obvious reasons, there were so many things that had to change to that home that it literally couldn't be built. The surprising one, though, was that they wouldn't allow a yellow house in today. They now have a design architectural design committee, and yellow's not an approved color. So we got a little that bit. That must have been painful, Glenn. It was so painful that I had one of my very good friends as an attorney uh, appeal. We have appealed that. We thought, this is silly. There's got to be a way to get around it. And you know, we went in and did our appeal and we lost. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I can either choose to get angry and frustrated and that's not going to do any good. Or I can focus on something that really is important, which was to fulfill my mom's dream for this park and pavilion. So we started there. And in the uh, spring of 2021, as soon as the snow melted, we started improving the roads, getting access. Well, the miracle of all miracles is that what would have taken you know, months and months of excavation to clear, Mother Nature took care of it as part of the fire. There was not a tree left. Actually, there were two trees in the entire area that were spared. And as far as you could see, it was just ash and char. So it was uh, in some ways a gift that they had given us a blank canvas. And that well, summer- it's Sort of a Phoenix situation, right? Rising out of the ashes, literally. Um, and also I- I can imagine, but you tell me that starting with something that was not there before um, might have been a good way to start because it really was, especially because it was their vision, it was their plan, 
And honestly, one of the most fulfilling things we've done since their loss uh, was on June 26th of 2022. So, you know, a year and a half after the fire, we were able to gather all their friends, the community, family, and we on their anniversary, we christened the Punks Pavilion in the High Almond Hideaway. And that summer, there was still a lot of scars around the mountainside. You could still see evidence of the fire everywhere. In fact, several of the homes had not yet been demolished. And so it was a, a little bit of a contrast, but in the midst of all that rubble and debris, there was this sign of life and freshness and newness. And we gathered, we had uh, we had a pizza oven put into it with a barbecue. We barbecued, cooked pizzas for everybody. And we just kind of- that fire in the pizza oven. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a fun way to bring closure to you know their dream that they wanted so desperately for everyone to have. And I, I got to believe they were looking down, smiling, knowing that their loved ones and friends had all gathered to remember them and uh, do it in a place that they had actually initiated. Well- I, I love metaphor too. And the metaphor of, um, uh, you know, we're never the same after loss, right? It changes us and it, and it literally changed the land that you're now building on and it, it won't be the same. It will be something entirely different and you new. Know, that is so true. And it was all, honestly, it was really disheartening. When we first got out there, we used to have hay fields out, you know, it's 43 acres and much of it's hay field, but uh, everything, the home was gone, the barns were gone, everything structurally was taken. But not only that, the soil, 18 to 24 inches had turned to ash. It was a potash soil that burned and it burned for months and months. So when we finally were able to get out there and access it, they told us, hey, we got to dig out, put foot and a half, two feet of ash before we can ever think about putting new soil in and replanting. So we had plenty of work to do, but you mentioned a blank canvas. It truly was a blank canvas. While the footprint was the same, there was none of the remnants of the past that we could rely on. Uh, we had to redo roads. We had to redo uh, everything with respect to structure and access. Um, but it was fun and we replanted the fields in 2021. That was one of the things we were able to get done. When we went back in 2022, we had some hay, but not enough to mow. And then this year we had our first harvest. Our first crop was a success and uh, it was beautiful again. So well, you know, ash is a fertilizer though too, isn't it? I it, mean, it, it was mixed in with the soil. They brought mulch soil and then mixed some of that ash in there. So we have beautiful fields this year that uh, were wonderful to to see, but we really were given a blank canvas. And I'll share with you a funny story that I can laugh at now, but when we first bought the property, my wife and I have six kids. And so while my parents had five and they built a big house, we felt like we needed a little bit more breathing room in there for six kids. And so I had hired a guy to digitize the plans my dad had made and just do a little extension on the front of the house that would have allowed for a little bit bigger kitchen and some bedrooms up above it. Well, I wouldn't know until after their passing, but my mom's sister told me that it really upset my mom. She was, that was her house. She loved it. She did not want to see her son taking out and changing what was perfection for her. Um, so in some regards, I don't know how it works, uh, but the fact that the home was completely gone and the county wouldn't let me rebuild that home anyway, uh, it almost forced us to go down this path. And I kind of had this confirmation that, you know what? It's your property now. We built our dream. Now you guys build your dream. So we're in the middle of doing that. We're building the home that will accommodate our family and friends for hopefully the next generation or two. And we get to do it a little differently than them. But one of the beautiful parts of the story is that 
my parents for years had, um, there was an accident that we share in the story. In 1993, my dad almost lost his arm. He did lose his arm, but they were able to reattach it. Um, after that accident, they planted two trees, spruce trees, um, one for my mom, one for my dad. And they decided at some point when they were gone, that's where they would want their ashes spread. And after the fire, on Friday after the fire, the coroner called me and it was an hour long conversation that fortunately I've recorded, which is it's a beautiful conversation. But in that conversation at the end, she asked if there was anything else. I said, I'm curious if there's two trees that might have survived somehow. And she was looking straight at the house and there was two black sticks of trees. And she goes, before I answer that, I want to be really certain what two trees are you looking for? And I said, well, are you looking at the house? And she said, yes, I am. I said, look to the left, going to the north, maybe a hundred yards out there. Is, are there two spruce? Well, it was so smoky still, she couldn't see. She goes, let me get out of the truck and I'll walk. And as she walks that direction, she gets within 20 feet of the trees. And she said, Glenn, you're not going to believe it. The fire burns right up to the trees, 15 feet in front of them. And it starts 15 feet after them, but the trees are there. They didn't burn. All the grass around them was completely burned. And I've got pictures of it that are just almost, I don't, I don't know how you fight a fire on the other side, but I'm sure somehow spiritually my dad was there with his fire hose taking care of those trees. But take <laughs> my trees. But somehow we were able to go back a week after that and we were able to spread their ashes under the two trees that were so important to them. And now as you come out of the back of our home, those two trees, we've created a little setting for them. They don't look very good right now, but they're still there. And we're going to dress that up and we put a little memorial bench there just to give people a chance to come and reflect on my parents and the lives and the impact they've had on so many people. And if they're alive, they will probably come back. I'm thinking about the banyan tree in Maui that, you know, I've, uh, oh, yeah. I, I know people in, in, in Hawaii and, um, you know, so in my social media pictures of the green that's that's coming back to that tree. And it, it gives you a sense of continuance, doesn't it? Um, We're hopeful that that'll be the case. Uh, we had a guy come out, a specialist, and he checked the roots, the, the trunks, nothing burned, um, but he said spruce are really temperamental. And the heat was so intense that over time, the, the pine needles have all turned brown. They're still there, but everything's brown. But he said the roots were healthy, the bark. He goes, you never know. And you know what? Quite honestly, I still like looking at them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still leave them. And they they survived long enough for you to actually spread their ashes there, which seems meaningful to it me. Was, it was completely a, a blessing. We loved it. It was awesome. <laughs> so uh, is this a house you imagine yourself actually living in at some point? Or is, is yeah, so we're building it as a retirement home, and I've got a few years ahead of me, and with the cost of materials and labor these days, it'll be a few more years now, but uh, we're-, we're not, to mention, not to mention actually getting the materials. <laughs> yeah. well, we're, we're framed up now, so the framing's complete, we're dried in, and they'll be able to work over the winter time now working on the interiors. But uh, yeah, long-term, we, we definitely plan to retire there someday and just pick up the pieces where my parents were left off. And it's a fun community. It's a it's a tourist community. And so people come from all over the world to visit the park. And the little village of Grand Lake is just a cute little wooden boardwalk town. And we love it. And my kids love it, importantly. And so part of our reason for buying the property is my kids had so many memories growing up there that they said, Dad, if there's any way you have to keep the property, let's you know, I had a lot of curiosity, actually, because, of course, um, in terms of your wider family, everyone and their children, uh, all different ages, I'm assuming, when your parents died, 
Um, and you seem like a family who is attached to the truth, right? You're, you've told the story of your mom getting pregnant and them getting married and, you know, um, so I'm very curious. We may not finish talking about it. We may come back to it af after the break. But how did your family deal with telling all the different generations what had happened? Um, because how we deal with news like that is is um, um, tells people how to grieve ultimately. Yeah. Right. You know, I never really took the time to ask any of my siblings, other than I did ask them for contributions. So while it's got my name on the front of the book, every one of my siblings contributed in some way. I mentioned early on, my oldest brother told a story that was just incredible that I'd never heard. And I thought, I got to include that. And every, every one of my siblings had stories or they read some of the early drafts of the book and they corrected me on things. That's not what happened. It happened this way. And so while I don't know exactly how they've all grieved and handled things differently, I do know that they felt, um, or at least I've tried to encourage them to be connected to the telling of the story and honoring my parents through that way. And they've all had their fingerprints all over it. And and there's there's just um, uh, it, with that many people, five kids, all of them with kids. I don't know how many your siblings have, but you have six. That's that's a big. And I'm imagining maybe some kids have kids. They uh, do. Yeah, there are great grandchildren. So um, it it occurs to me you're a you're a um, a laboratory for how to deal with kids in grief. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the appeal to this, even before the fire, was that we wanted the legacy of my parents' gathering to continue. And so our ambition from the very beginning has been, let's recreate this and restore it in a way that all of our family will be comfortable coming back. And, you know, nothing makes me happier. We had a niece who came up uh, six months ago now, but back in June, July, she came up and spent some time with her boys on the property. It warmed my heart to know that they have a desire to be there. And we've had countless family members who have gone up for either various family functions or just on their own initiative to go back and uh, spend some time on the property. And that's what we hope will continue. We hope that in some way, the property will help to keep the memories of my parents alive. I, I, I don't imagine... It, it relies entirely on that because they're memorable. <laughs> so yeah. I'm pretty sure you, you'll all remember uh, your own versions of them, right? But to have a place together, that's very rare these days in families, um, I feel. So that's a, a precious thing, isn't it? We're going to go to a break and we'll come back and talk more for the third segment. So listeners, you can, of course, go find me at uh, the Good Grief host page or my website, goodgriefwithcheryl.com. And to find Glenn Heilman's book, go to yellowhouseinthemountains.com. Back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com. 
com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Glenn Heilman about his book, A Yellow House in the Mountains, and most particularly about his parents, Lyle and Marilyn. Um, let's let's dig into them a little bit here, because, um, of course, I feel as if I've gotten to know them just reading, you know, reading all the stories about them that um, a very uh, religious oriented couple but they had their salty aspects as you said earlier and um i wondered as children did you were you aware of some of their uh misadventures uh and you know how how were stories held in your family that's what i really want to ask you know there was an element of you know, not wanting to air their dirty laundry, especially with their young children. So when we were younger, I don't recall my parents ever sharing. My dad, for example, never shared with me as a youth stories of his stealing tires and getting caught being thrown into jail in Mississippi, having run away from home. He didn't share that with us until we were adults, right? So, and I'm sure he had his reasons as to why, but um, it was very clear growing up that neither of my parents were perfect, far from it. They had their challenges both in raising a family, but they also had their problems interpersonally with each other. And it was interesting watching how they would argue. They they would definitely have their moments. And especially um, with them working as hard as they did, they were, my mom had to work full-time, my dad worked multiple jobs full-time. Uh, that created strain in their relationship and trying to feed five kids was not an easy thing. But one thing we never lacked is an understanding of the love my mom and dad had for one another. They absolutely were head over heels in love. And so they had figured out how to argue. Uh, we were observing it of that, but we knew they argued. And 
I can remember as a child on occasion thinking, are they going to stay married? Because they would go at it occasionally. But as I got older, I just realized, and especially as I became married and started having my own interpersonal relationship, arguments happen. You know, you don't, you don't agree on everything. But one thing I think that is a part of their faith is that they believed and we believe that we're here on earth for a reason. And we're never going to reach or attain perfection that we're not intended to. But we are expected to try and be our best and to strive to always improve. And I think that continuous improvement was built into their DNA and they passed it on to us as children. So be your best when you make a mistake, acknowledge it, admit it, and then move on and learn from it. But don't overthink it. Don't dwell on it. Do better. So that was kind of their mindset. That's what they passed on to us. I love the story of your your mom being mad at your dad and um they lived at the time close to her parents and you describe her walking away thinking maybe she wouldn't go back. And it, it, you know, sometimes you don't know how deep your commitment is until it gets tested. Um, She decided on that walk. I'm never leaving. Right. Then you just argue and get through it and then figure out what to do next. Um, I, when I'm part of that was her strong will, but I think another part of it, Cheryl, was that um, she had been told by everyone that you can't get married at 16 and expect that it's going to last. It's just not going to last. Everybody, I'm sure, was telling them that, and I think that just motivated her. I am not going to wave the white flag, even though at the moment, in the heat of passion, she was done. Uh, the closer she got to her parents' front door, the closer she realized, I'm not going in there. I'm going to go back home and work this out. <laughs> So there's something in that about I'll show them, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't tell me I'm not going to stick. Exactly. <laughs> Her psychology, I guess. But I, when I'm working with couples, I'm I'm always saying, well, we at least you you have to make a a, a decision not to leave for the period of time we're trying to work because otherwise you'll keep thinking about it. Yeah. And, and you won't work it out because you'll think, is this the time I should leave? So I think commitment does, as long as it's the right person, does have a lot to offer in terms of um, actually getting to some solutions. And, you know, I think the fact that that happened so early in their marriage, that was probably a blessing for them because certainly they had much bigger challenges that would come. But having overcome that and having made that determination that we're going to stay together, it, it may not always be easy, but we're going to work it out. I'm glad that, that for them it happened really early and it gave them the motivation to continue on because they certainly faced even greater challenges as life continued. Yeah, it doesn't seem as if they they considered that or she considered that again. It, your dad doesn't strike me as someone who would have considered it. Never. No, he bored <laughs> my mother. She never had to wonder whether she was loved. He absolutely made that clear to everyone. I, I, my father was similar. so. Um, And the other thing I enjoyed was, you know, this is a strange word that I enjoyed it, but they did a lot of thinking about how they would survive the other. Yeah. Because at that age, um, I mean, even for me, I'm 70, I think about, you know, one of us will survive the other and what that looks like and all of that. Um, But sometimes it's so rare for, for a couple to die together at a very, very old age. It really is. And, you know, for our family, as much as we miss them, it it was such a beautiful thing that they could be together, that they had 86 and 84 years, 68 years of marriage. Who gets that, right? It's like, that's a lifetime for some people that they spent in a marriage. Um, 
And the fact that they didn't, they they did worry about how what would happen. You know, first of all, they were living at nine thousand feet. It would have been impossible for either of them to live up there without the other. My mom took care of everything inside. My dad took care of everything outside. And it took that kind of teamwork to be able to live in the mountains. Um, so that was a concern of theirs. That's part of what the motivation was. My mom came to us earlier than we would have liked and said she wanted us to buy the property because they started worrying what's going to happen if dad falls off the tractor or if, if I get hurt or if, if I have a heart attack or a stroke or something. You know, they're at the age where that's life. That's what happens. And so they had started to think about those things. They wanted to have the material means to being able to have an alternative place in Denver if necessary. But their intention was we're going to sell it now. But um, we want to stay here as long as we possibly can. And that was another seven or eight months before the fire came. And in some regards, I almost feel like my mom had an intuition that something was coming. Well, it does seem a little prescient, doesn't it? Um, I mean, we never know because you can have feelings like that and the thing doesn't happen, right? But yeah. <laughs> but it is um, profound, the impact on you of those two things coming so close together. And also, I was thinking about the fact that the whole world at that moment was grieving. Yeah. Right? Sure. No one's life was staying the same right then. But your um, loss didn't have to do with COVID at all. Right. Uh, but that that intensifies things, doesn't it? That every, all kinds of people around you are, um, as, as a grief counselor, I just noticed how much more public talk there was about grief right um because grief up to that point has been a fairly lonely um experience in our culture uh, you know i've been a champion for it not being right. um and sometimes circumstance really changes something in that regard did did that affect you at all that there was all this other loss happening around you that was we had uh, some early deaths due to COVID as early as uh, March of COVID hit in February sometime. Within a few short weeks, we lost one of our neighbors, uh, an elderly gentleman, but he was one of the first in Utah to go. Um, so it hit home pretty quick and pretty rapidly, which I think also for us just illustrated what a miracle it was that they were able to enjoy the entire period of COVID from February of 2020 till the fire on October 21st. And they were both in really good health, probably the best health of the prior 10 years. They were together. And because COVID hit, one of the blessings was that everyone's vacation plans were put on hold. Well, the one thing all of us could do as families, we could still drive to Colorado. And, and we did. All five of their children made not one, but multiple trips to go visit them. My mom in October had told us it was like a revolving door of visitors because it was the only thing people could do during a period of COVID. All you know, cruises were canceled, flights were canceled, but absolutely well, we go visit well, Lyle and Mary Lynn in Colorado. Let's go do that. And so they had a wonderful summer of good health and visitors and people that they loved and cared about the most uh, were there to share the experience of being and, on the property. And none of you have to think, and of course I hear this uh, uh, lots, if I'd only known, I would have yeah. blank, blank. Um, but you did. You all spent time with them. You um, Maybe that was actually a little better for your dad to have you one family at a time. I don't know. Yeah, he struggled with crowds. There's no doubt. Uh, one of the fun stories I loved sharing was the one about my dad and Prozac. Uh, he, he still didn't know my mom. But my mom had learned that if she could pop one Prozac, that was good. And if 
family and grandkids were coming over too, would do the job. And it would make him at least more patient, more tolerable of all the noise and commotion going on in that house because it was busy. Every time we would go to visit, we had a lot of a lot of visitors on that house that uh, could drive you a little crazy. But uh, yeah, he, he found ways of coping through my mom, whether he knew about it or not. I don't know for sure. I, I was glad to read that she checked with his doctor before she went ahead and gave him another one because I've got a brother who's a doctor and <laughs> it's not a great idea, right? <laughs> he had lots of uh, advice with respect to, you know, my dad struggled with, I don't know if it was depression or what it was anxiety. He definitely had some challenges that would appear at moments of stress and grandkids and noise and confusion definitely elevated that stress level. So I could imagine I, I could imagine that would increase after the accident he had. That was a pretty grueling um, experience, and um, working it working it out in your uh, in your mind after something like that happens um, probably didn't go to a therapist or anything. <laughs> I don't know. His therapy but, was work. He was within nine months. He was back to work. That's that's all he ever wanted to do is build, create, work. He loved it. So it so it seems as if you inherited that, but also a um, a willingness to share feelings that yeah. maybe you didn't have as much. Did you learn that from your mom, or where did you buy that? My mom was a storyteller. She loved to embellish stories. I'd mentioned that in the preface that she always liked to tell a good story and didn't want the the details to get in the way of the story. You know, so she embellished a lot, but she loved to tell stories and. There's just in our family a culture of openness. You know, it's, it goes back to the acknowledgement that we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. Let's be honest about it. Identify what we did wrong and then say you're sorry and move on and do better. Good principle for all of us, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, what are, your, what are your hopes for the book? We just have a couple of minutes left. What, so uh, we're going to launch in February. February. We, hope, we hope to get that out. Honestly, I, I hope that the book would be received for anybody that's looking for an uplifting and inspirational story. Um, I had one reader uh, do a review on it and she said, it felt a little bit like the Waltons. You know, just, and it, it does have some of those elements to it that it's a feel good story, but I think the transparency of it is what will hopefully help the readers to be able to relate to. It's like, these were not perfect people, far from it, but they dealt with problems that we all deal with every day. And I think some of their solutions to those problems were inspiring and helpful. And the fact that they, saw a purpose in their lives that they hope to be able to share with others is really consistent with why I wrote the book. And hopefully it'll be something that'll touch the lives of other people that have a chance to pick it up. You know, I've noticed too that um, both of my parents have died, not of anything like this. Uh, my relationship with them keeps changing. I, I keep seeing them more fully as human beings uh, instead of just my parents. I, I could hope that for all of you that, you know, but I, I think the book is a great start at that because yeah. it's the story of them, right? Um, you're a part of it, but also it's their story. Yeah. Um, and uh, closer to them as a result of having written it, right? I had to do a little research to understand what was going on at certain periods of time. So it's definitely uh, brought me closer to them. It's it's interesting how that can happen even after after someone's died, isn't it? it really is. Glad I've enjoyed our talk. I'm so so happy you came on the show. Thanks for being for with having me. It's been a wonderful experience. Uh, to find Glenn Howman, you can go to yellowhouseinthemountains.com.
Next week, I'll have Gail Marlene Schwartz. Her novel, Falling Through the Night, captures many of the growing pains of young queer folks as they struggle to find their footing and independence in adulthood, much of which Schwartz herself can deeply relate to. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.